Today's Old Testament lesson is from the book of Isaiah, chapter 45, verses 1 to 7. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped to subdue nations before him and strip kings of their robes, to open doors before him, and the gates shall not be closed. I will go before you and level the mountains. I will break in pieces the doors of bronze and cut through the bars of iron. I will give you the treasures of darkness and riches hidden in secret places, so that you may know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who call you by your name. For the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel, my chosen, I call you by your name. I surname you, though you do not know me. I am the Lord, and there is no other besides me. There is no God. I arm you, though you do not know me, so that you may so that they may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is no one besides me. I am the Lord and there is no other. I form light and create darkness. I make weal and create woe. I, the Lord, do all these things. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Well, amen. Amen. Thank you, Alexis, for reading our text uh, today. Alexis is a recent CPA graduate uh, bound for the University of Alabama, and we're grateful for her and to her for reading our lesson and to our musicians. Our hearts have been warmed by the beauty of music, and it has been such a blessing to us. Thank you, Toy and Adam and uh, Greg and Patsy and all who have led us. Uh, at the conclusion of our service today, we're going to conclude it as we began it uh, with the singing of It Is Well With My Soul, and we look forward to that as well. Uh, if you have been with us since July the 12th in streaming, uh, you know that we're coming to the conclusion today of our series that we have called Lessons from the Quarantine. And I want to begin by thanking John Bright Cage uh, for his insights. John Bright, we are so grateful for you. Uh, we're so grateful for your witness, and I will never eat a peach without thinking of your witness, and we're grateful to you and for you today. Uh, during this series, we've been taking a deeper look at what I think is the most distressing season in the history of ancient Israel. And of course, I'm talking about the exile. The loss of home, the loss of land, the loss of heritage, the loss of temple, of worship place, of culture. For Judah was not just a political crisis, although it was that. It was a faith crisis. The pain of what happened to Judah was surpassed only by the lingering question of why it happened to Judah. Now, historians are very helpful to us. They can tell us what it is that happened, but prophets tell us why it happened and for what purpose. I'm thinking this morning about a Palestinian-American Christian named Edward Said, who described exile in these words. Exile is the unhealable rift between a human being and a native place between the self and its true home. Says Dr. Saeed, its essential sadness can never be surmounted. And while it's true that literature and history 
contain heroic, romantic, glorious, even triumphant episodes in an exile's life. These are no more than efforts meant to overcome the crippling sorrow of estrangement. Such is the pathos of an exile. I think the best description that I can identify with in terms of exile is, is the idea of being homesick. My sister reminded me last week of one of our favorite family stories. When I was a boy of seven years age, uh, I had a friend named John, uh, John Baldwin, as I recall. We were both second graders in Ransom Elementary School. Mrs. Hill was our teacher. He lived five houses down from our place on Whitland Avenue, which is right off of West End Avenue. I, I remember inviting him to spend the night one weekend with me, not knowing that John had never once been away from home at night, and we got along fine until dark. But after dinner, if you looked closely at his face, you could see the stress, you could see the worry in his eyes. And I remember waking up at midnight to the sound of him crying. Uh, we went into my parents' room and woke my father, which was never a pleasurable task. And my, my dad picked up the phone, dialed his number, handed him the phone. His mother answered, and this is what John said. This is exactly what he said. Hello, Mom. This is John Baldwin. I want to come home. Two minutes, five houses down. And already feeling forgotten. Well, compare that with 70 years and a thousand miles away from home. That was the experience of Judah. We've been reading these last three or four weeks the words of prophets who actually envisioned and endured this estrangement, this homesickness. Namely, we talked about Jeremiah, we talked about Ezekiel. And today, Alexis has read from Isaiah. These men of God were somehow able by the Spirit to see behind the curtain of history. And they interpreted their experience, their estrangement, as the upshot of their own idolatry and injustice. And as we said last week, it wasn't that Yahweh abandoned the people. It was that the people abandoned Yahweh. And the result, of, co of course, was a spiritual implosion. It was disintegration. It was a disaster. Now, as you can imagine, some of these exiles in Babylon went AWOL in terms of their faith. In other words, many of them switched allegiance from the God of Israel to the God of Babylon. After all, it was commonly accepted in the ancient Near East in that period of time that the defeat of a nation also meant the demise of that nation's sponsoring deity. And so in this case, the God of Babylon, Marduk, must be greater than the God of Israel, Yahweh. And so there were those on the bank of that irrigation canal who concluded, if you can't beat them, join them. Cult and nation were considered inseparable. In fact, in 6th century BC, the stature of a tribal god was me measured by two things, money 
and military success. And so allegiance to Marduk was allegiance to Babylon. And allegiance to Babylon was allegiance to Marduk. Now the problem with this perspective was that sometimes the desires of God become sabotaged by the interests of the nation. There were others in that exilic community who rejected completely the idea of nation-cult idea. In fact, in lieu of this painful experience, they believed that God had nothing to do with politics, that God was completely hands-off, disengaged from the material world, and that there was, in fact, no real connection between religion and history, they said. But the problem with that is, if that's true, then how on earth would we ever be able to trust the incarnation, a God who actually comes in human form, a God who in the fullness of historical time takes on flesh and becomes one of us? In the midst of this painful estrangement with, these, with this dichotomy of perspective, Isaiah and friends perceived an alternative between the two extremes. The prophets held that Yahweh was in fact engaged in the events of history, but in ways that were far, far different from what the predominant culture imagined. They believed that God was engaged in history because of their own personal experience, because of the exodus now, if you happen to be one of those who believe that religion and politics never mix, what do you do with the exodus? Ever since Moses traipsed into the palace to confront Pharaoh, religion and politics have been strange bedfellows. But, and this is a big but, when God acted on behalf of Israel's descendants in Egypt, it was not because God favored a national agenda. It was because of God's universal concern for justice. Now, this is key to understanding biblical theology. This is key to understanding our Judeo-Christian ethic. The Hebrew slaves were not delivered because God loved Hebrews and hated Egyptians. They were delivered because God loves justice and God hates oppression. Because of this unique experience in the Exodus, from this time on, faith and politics, Israel will make laws protecting the weak and the poor, the alien, the immigrant, and opposing claims of special privilege. I remember when Sherry and I lived in Atlanta, we took our confirmation class one day to Ahavit Akim, which was the Jewish temple, and one of our wise sixth graders asked the priest a question. She asked, does being Jewish make you more special? And the priest said, no, not more special, more responsible. God's involvement in history is not guided by favoritism. It is guided by impartial justice and unconditional mercy. 
And so Isaiah and the prophets were clear, crystal clear, that when any nation, including Israel, neglects justice and mercy, there are consequences. And this is the why of exile. Exile was not a historical accident. It was a consequence. Idolatry and injustice. Jesus, you know, stood up against the synagogue folk for the same reason when he said, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint, dill, and cumin, but you neglect the weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. Now, I want to pause for a moment and say at this point, it is an absolute miracle that Israel survived the exile without losing their faith. You know why they didn't lose their faith? Because they actually experienced God's presence even in their estrangement. And that's unique. They discerned with the help of the prophets that discipline and accountability is not a sign of God's absence. It's a sign of God's presence. One of the key verses in this text that Alexis read is verse 7, chapter 45. It's rather controversial. It says, God speaking says, I form light and create darkness. I make wheel, which means wealth or prosperity, and I create woe. What does that mean? The, the English Standard Version says it like this, God speaking, I make well-being and I create calamity. That's an interesting passage. A word of caution, I think, needs to be noted here. This seventh verse does not mean that everything that happens is caused by God. But it does mean that God is engaged in all things that happen. That's what Paul was saying in Romans chapter 8. And we know that in all things, God works together for good for those who love him. Doesn't cause all things, but is engaged in working in all things for good for those who are called according to his purpose. This matches a verse in Genesis which says, what man intends for evil, God works for good. After the destruction of Jerusalem in 586 B.C., Isaiah begins to change his tune. After 39 chapters of judgment and woe, finally, in chapters 40 through 55, we hear this word of hope. Comfort, comfort ye my people. Israel has paid double portion for their sin. And then he announces he's going to bring them home. And God is going to arrange their homecoming once again in a very surprising way. He's going to use a most unlikely instrument. In or around the year 560, there was a new leader on the world stage, a Persian whose name was Cyrus. The name literally means one who is far-sighted, who can see way out into the future, Cyrus. Mind you, this leader was not an Israelite. He wasn't Jewish. He was a pagan. He was Persian. But Isaiah 45, verse 1, God speaking says, I have anointed Cyrus. Now, that word for anointing in, in Hebrew, you know what it means? It means messianic. It means Messiah. So God is going to anoint a foreigner 
who neither believes in Yahweh nor even knows Yahweh, but Yahweh knows him. That's prevenient grace. Every now and then someone will say to me, well, I'm really not sure about God. I'm not sure I believe in God. And I sometimes respond, yes, but God believes in you. He didn't know God, but God had a purpose for him. In fact, listen to the voice of God again in the passage. I have grasped his right hand. What does that mean? The right hand of God is the power of God, the favored position of God. I have taken him by the right hand. I will open the doors before him, and the gates shall not be closed. I will level the mountains. I will break in pieces the doors of bronze and cut through the bars of iron. What does that mean? What's he talking about? He's talking about Babylon, which was known for its gates of bronze and its bars of iron. He's going to break through. God's talking about liberation. He's talking about restoration. He's talking about homecoming. Now, I know you're thinking, well, wait a second. You're saying that Cyrus doesn't believe like we believe. Yes. You're saying that Cyrus is not actually a believer in Yahweh. Correct. You're saying that God is going to use him in a messianic way in spite of the fact that he's a heathen, he's a Persian, he's a pagan, he's a non-Hebrew. God is anointing him. Yes, that's exactly what I'm saying. And I can tell by the way that you're looking at me through the camera that you're wondering, am I off my, this is not my idea. I'm sorry if it's offensive to your theological sensibilities, but this is God's purpose. In fact, in Isaiah 55, Isaiah speaking for God says, my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, for as the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. In this Persian pagan king, Isaiah foresees a coming leader who is not guided by hubris or pride or cruelty, but by justice, by a humane policy that allows those who are subjugated to maintain their heritage, to maintain their home, their faith, their dignity, and that's exactly what Cyrus did for Israel. He brought them home. And furthermore, with the tax base of the equivalent of the Persian version of the IRS, he actually helped to rebuild the city and reconstruct the temple. And God didn't just do that for Israel. He did it for the nations. Listen to verses 4 and following again. For the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel my chosen, I call you Cyrus by name, though you do not know me, so that the world may know that there is no one like me. For I am the Lord and there is no other. I form light and create darkness. I make weal and create woe. I, the Lord, do all these things. And so this is not a God who's disengaged. He's fully involved. So much so that in the fullness of time, he will embody himself not in the form of a conqueror, but in the form of a cross-bearer, 
who will lead us to a redemptive end which all nations will see in the New Jerusalem. Stanley Hauerwas has written a book called Resident Aliens for many years. He was professor of theology and ethics at Duke. He says this in that book, we would like a church that again asserts that God, not nations, rules the world, that the boundaries of God's kingdom transcend those of Caesar and Nebuchadnezzar and Pharaoh, and that the main political task of the church is the formation of people who see clearly the cost of discipleship and are willing to pay the price. One other word and I'm finished. Like many of you, over the last several months, I've had some highs and some lows during the quarantine. I had a low a few days ago. In, In my prayer time, I said something like this to God. Lord, it sure would be a good time for you to return or me to retire. And I remember sensing that God was saying, you always want it easy, don't you? This is a time in which you may need more faith than you've had before. What I'm trying to do, I felt God saying, is to develop a deeper trust not only in you, but in your people. Do you understand that? And I said, well, okay, Lord, I'm in, but it sure would be a good time, I'm just saying. And about that time, I got a call from one of our families. Their 13-year-old daughter, who's in our youth group, has had an experience with the Holy Spirit and she wanted to tell me about it. She wanted to reaffirm her vows, her baptismal vows. And so we made an appointment. We wore our mask and sat around the table and she told me about her experience and the work of grace in her life. And so last Wednesday, which happened to be the 13th anniversary of her baptism as a little baby, which was officiated right over here, by Howard Olds on the 13th anniversary last Wednesday, she renewed her promise to God. I called Sandy Olds, Howard's wife, that very day and said, Sandy, I just want you to know that the seeds of God that you and Howard planted are still bearing fruit. They're still bearing fruit. The whole day that day, was a sign to me that in weal and in woe, God is still on the throne. God is still moving, God is calling, God is working. And though we're unsure in the quarantine of the present, God has spoiled the ending for us. We know where this train is going. And because of that, we're in, in weal, in woe. The Lord can do all things. In Jesus' name, amen.